whoever is the winner on the weekend, we want some good leadership. We want vision. We want big picture stuff. Not all this ridiculousness. It's like my mother says this to me about her friends. She'll say, darling, her neck's gone. <laughs> I never used to know what it meant. Well, my mother said when you get menopause, you'll grow a beard and your knees drop. Oh, God. From about the age of 30, I was going, oh, please, I don't want to have menopause. Sorry, you've got and then sure arms. enough. That was puberty in my case. <laughs> You know, in Java Ridge, you've got two boats. One boat is full of Australian surfers for whom it is a playground, and the other boat is full of people from a landlocked nation who are petrified of what's going on around them. And so when they wind up on the same piece of reef, you, you can really make that contrast between the two societies and the way they look at the ocean. I was suspended for smoking at school. We, we actually did it somewhere we shouldn't have done it, in the bathrooms. Really stupid. Oh, right. Not like the fuel store or something? No. <laughs> no, no. And the problem for Shane Warne, to me, is that for years and years he's been playing this character called Shane Warne, which means that when he tries to turn the dial to serious, it's very, very hard to meet him there. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 63 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm here with my dear friend, Corrie Perkin, the bookseller, the columnist, the board member, so many things, oh, so many Jack things. Jack of all trades. Hello, Caro. And you've, you've really impressed me this week because a few months ago, remember when Jock Sarong was my crush of the week? I don't well, you've managed to get him in. If, if only we could get all our crushes of the week. Thank all you. I, all I had to ben. say... You're Caroline Wilson's crush of the week. Would you please come to the studio? Poor man. He was probably absolutely mortified. Jock Sarong, welcome to the show. Thanks, Caroline. I think I can go home happy now. Oh, we're, we're, we're very excited because you've got a new book out and I've been harassing Corrie about this book for a long time. It's called Preservation. It's our book of the week. More of that in a moment. And Jock's life, his three previous books. Obviously, his thoughts on cricket, because that is how, well, that's how I first knew about him, that wonderful novel, The Rules of Backyard Cricket, what he thinks about what's going on with Australian I'll, I'll cricket never at the forget, moment. I'll never forget that time, the summer before last, Caro, when you just said, you just handed that book to me over a banana lounge and said, you have to read this book. And I well, said, I don't want to read a book about cricket. No, we have no to. No offence, Jock. We have to thank <laughs> our wonderful friend Mary Stephen in our book club because um, she was my book club, Chris Kringle. And she said, I think you'll really enjoy this. I think it's about Shane Warne. I actually don't think it is about Shane Warne, having read it now, but more of that later. Um, my first big apology for a while, Corrie, I did that wonderful recipe last week, the South Indian fish curry. I said I was going to give it to Jane for the show notes. It's out of the Monday Morning Cooking Club Girls, one of their, their first cookbook, in fact. And Jane, I'm sorry. We've only just got it now, but it is now on the show notes. Trust me, it's an easy curry to make. There and has well been worth so it. much anguish in the burbs that you forgot that. I'm so glad you had an apology and not me. But we are a couple of nice things, Caro. We had a lovely comment from Justin Irwin, who's one of our regular listeners. Hi, Justin. We have too many current affairs hosts who sound more like Mark Moore, Mike Moore from Frontline. They should all listen to your wonderful interview with Kerry O'Brien. What sensitivity, what feel for the news and what class. We agree with that, don't we? Who knew that Kerry O'Brien was such a fan of Bette Midler's if only he'd had that dinner party. What, and, and, and asked speaking us. Of, speaking of apologies and a reminder that the special podcast lunch at the Flying Duck Paran is now booked out. Thank you, Interchange Bench. The Flying Duck and all our Don't Shoot the Messengers who've gotten behind this wonderful Breast Cancer Network Australia cause. We'll see you there next Wednesday. And Corrie, um, I think we're going to kick off with our guests now, aren't well, we? Well, we're first, are there a couple of You're other You're not still boasting things. about your Melbourne Cup tip. I mean, no, this is a very happy listener. Oh. On Instagram, Cinders underscore M, who said, 
So not only did I win on the cup, now my daughter has a job through the interchange bench. What a wonderful podcast. A multi-leveled thank you. And I just wanted to do a, a cheery, cheerio to Shane of Andy's Doggy Daycare, uh, which is based in Brunswick, Caro, and it's it's a fully equipped dog daycare centre. And uh, Shane actually named it after his dog, Andy, died. And you can take your dog there for the whole day. So it's like a childcare centre. So you drop Billy off in the morning and Billy will have a walk, um, a wash and a brush and a blow dry and puppy care of all sorts. And then if you have any, you know, questions about the psychology of the dog or anything that you need to workshop, Andy's there to help you. Well, not Andy. Andy's the dog. Shane. (laughs) Shane. You know the best Shane, thing. Isn't that a great idea for a business? But he listens every week, and he came all the way from Brunswick to visit the bookshop and to say good day. So I thought he deserved a shout out. And what a great business! I thought too. I had the most beautiful swim with my old Labrador yesterday. That's the best thing about aging dogs. They still will mind anyway. Who's nearly fifteen? They still love swimming, and they love their mums. Unconditional love. Anyway, that's probably not a bad segue to introduce Jock, um, who's. Fourth book is called Preservation. So Jock Quota was number one, then the rules of backyard cricket, then on Java Ridge, which was a just a wonderful, wonderful book, and now Preservation. You've gone back into Australian history. We're sort of going to segue in and out of this, aren't we? Aren't we? But yeah, we, we can do whatever you want, Caro. Yeah. And we can talk Labradors too. If you had a Labrador, I've got an aging Labrador. How old? Oh, he's, I reckon he's now 12, but he seems older. Yeah. He's a bit like a great white. He's dark over the back, but quite white underneath. So is he black? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mine's, it's a spring yeah. chicken compared to our two dogs. Yeah, Billy's um, nearly 15 and chocolate, but yeah, a lot of white underneath. But it's so lovely when they get in the water because they become young again. I don't know. Well, swimming true. is obviously their natural thing. And the other thing people often say, you know, you've got to get a puppy to keep them going when they're really old. We got a chicken and the two of them have just fallen <laughs> in love with each other. They are the best of mates. You might be able to do that at Port Ferry, a bit difficult in inner city <laughs> Melbourne. A well, they're chicken. both gluttons. <laughs> That's what they share. That's true. That's what happens true. when the chicken becomes a hen and gets all territorial when she's laying eggs? He gives her space. <laughs> oh, my daughter a good brought dog a chicken do home from school once and it became a rooster and the crowing just drove us nuts. They oh. actually do cock-a-doodle-doo at dawn every day. It's not just in sort of farmyard stories. <laughs> Jock, what made you delve back into this piece of Australian history? That Just very quickly, it, it opens in 1797. Yeah. Um, three castaways turn up at Sydney Cove, um, completely emaciated, clearly something brutal and very evil has gone on, and it is the job of the governor of the day and his lieutenant, who has a very sick wife, who is a fascinating part of the story, to find out what's happened. Yeah, I um, I suppose I, I knew about the true story of the Sydney Cove for many years, and um, I had thought of it simply in terms of it being a survival story, and it's certainly that. Um, but for it to then become a good base for a novel, it needs a whole lot more, and in this case... Um, there is a whole lot more to the story than just the survivors of a shipwreck. There's a lot about first contact with Aboriginal people. Um, there's a lot, I thought, about the landscape. And um, one of the three survivors kept a diary. And the diary's since been lost. But happily, um, it was transcribed or paraphrased by an Indian newspaper. And so we have a record of what happened on the walk. But it's a very, very skeletal record. There's a lot of important stuff missing um, and, and what it really brought home to me was that it was this extraordinary study in landscape, having to work out how to get across rivers, 
how to deal with rocky coasts and long stretches of sand and the terrors of not knowing what's in the bush. It's an easy assumption to make now that there are no large carnivores that are going to kill you, but um, there was no such understanding at the time. And there was a lot of myth-making about Aboriginal people and, and who they might have been. So those kind of unknowns were where the real interest was, as, as well as it being a shipwreck yarn. So well, it's, it starts on, with Corey, se- 17, 17 survivors of this shipwreck, of this dodgy ship that leaves Calcutta called the Sydney Cove, which in itself is a rather cheeky name because that's not, not this, really called the Sydney yeah, Cove right, at all. Not really the Sydney Cove. I think of it as vanity plates. <laughs> it's a marketing exercise. <laughs> yeah. It was, and it is carrying a stash of illegal rum as well. There are 17 survivors and then three are found at the end on the beach um, in terrible condition by fishermen who have fished up from Sydney and they've seen them on the foreshore. But these chaps have walked from where we think is the southernmost point of Victoria, would that be right, roughly right, and then yeah. up the coast or up the, and certainly up the 90-mile beach and all of that coastline yeah, of southern that's right. New South Wales. And- they probably started somewhere near Lakes Entrance um, and they got as far as oh, about 40 miles south of Sydney. So the, the walk, depending how they did it, is something like 600 miles. So what I loved about there's so many things you love about it, but just on the, uh, the, the Indigenous characters and their involvement, it, you presented a bit like Kate Grenville did with the Secret River. You allow us to imagine Australia at the time of uh, white European settlers arriving and the curiousness of the Indigenous folk and not... Everyone, indeed, in your in your story, they're not really headhunting cannibal. You know, they're not they're not that sort of native, if you like, which is what they had preconceived ideas of. You know, because they'd met this sort of indigenous person in Africa or India or wherever, and they thought, oh well, these these black fellows must be the same. Yeah, and um, of the three survivors who tell their stories, they have three different understandings of who those people are. And Srinivas, who's a, a young Bengali boy, um, approaches them on, on very honest terms. He's curious about them, they're curious about him, and he has no pre- preconceived notions at all. Clark, who's a trader, is much more cynical and tends to think of the Aboriginal people he meets as one amorphous mass. In other words, they're just the natives. Um, Fig is pure evil and Fig will um, tolerate people and treat them well insofar as it suits his particular ends. If you look at it from the other end, if you look at it from the Aboriginal end, seeing these men walking through the bush must have been profoundly strange because they're travelling in a way that there's no indication Aboriginal people travelled, walking straight from south to north across their territories. They would have wondered at why these people were making such a ham-fisted job of surviving when it shouldn't have been that hard. What we know from Clark's diary is that um, at some points in that walk, and probably for the majority of that walk, they were looked after by Aboriginal people. And at some stage it's gone wrong because at least two of them have been speared. And um, if you look at Clark's injuries, he's been speared through both hands, which would suggest something ritual, um, not uh, a skirmish. So what's Clark done that's caused that? He doesn't say anything about it in what survives of his diary. Um, so there's room to speculate about what went on there. And boy, do you speculate. And then you introduce <laughs> us to Mr. Fig, who you just described as pure evil. Where, where did he come from? Well, Fig's interesting. Carol I, hasn't quite finished the story yet. It I, gets 
darker and darker, doesn't it? He's promised me it's not quite as devastating as on Java Ridge, <laughs> which is one of the more devastating, but I suppose fitting endings. But figures, obviously, uh, is he a real character? No. Um, the third survivor was a guy called John Bennett. And um, just in story making terms, I didn't like that as a name for my evil guy. So uh, I initially called him Lamprey because I liked the idea of this parasitic fish attaching himself to a host. Um, and then um, there, were, <laughs> there were some discussions about that, and we decided that was a bit of an overcooked metaphor. So he became Fig. Um, but what's interesting about Fig as a character is I had this very strong sense of who he would be, that he would appear out of nowhere, that he would attach himself to the group, he would cause havoc, but for no particular um, material end. He's not really in it for the money. Um, he's not in it for political power. He appears to be in it for nothing but kicks. And uh, then at the other end of the story, um, I don't think it's any spoiler to say that he vanishes out of the other end of the story. And um, I then, in the middle of writing this, I was reading Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, and he has this character called Judge Holden, who is exactly the same character. He is found sitting naked in the desert, and he's a seven-foot hairless man, and he joins this group of men wandering across the prairie and he doesn't appear to age and um, then there's Professor Woland in The Master and Margarita um, these characters recur all the time in fiction and, and they're a bit of an archetype and when I said this to um, my editor Mandy Brett I said you know I think I've sort of latched onto something that repeats a lot with this fig guy and she said oh yeah that's a dibbic and I must have looked at her blankly. And she said, As I am looking at you now. <laughs> <laughs> a dibbic is apparently an ancient Jewish tradition, which is almost a pagan tradition, of this kind of Satan incarnate figure who appears in people's endeavours, causes mayhem, and then vanishes again um, and never quite ages. And, and the way that Bulgakov used the dibbic in Master and Margarita was Satan comes to Moscow in the middle of the Soviet regime. And that was written in 1940. It was censored until 1967. And then two of the very early people who picked it up were Jagger and Richards, and they wrote Sympathy for the Devil. Oh. So the, these things sort of wind in and out of art everywhere you look. Um, and that was why I just I felt so drawn to this fig guy. You know, I had to have it in there. I was fascinated by the, the whole Bass Strait um, references, you know, this and the maps at the start of the book where, where it's made clear that at that point there's still only theories about this body of water that does or does not connect Tasmania to mainland Australia or to Sydney Cove, really. They're the two places they know about. So that wasn't known, that, that was all about to happen, was it, in 1797? Yeah, that's right. So um, at that stage... You have to get to the end of the book, Caro. <laughs> <laughs> but just in pure historic terms. Yeah, I, I have this idea that Bass Strait, and in particular that little group of islands called the Furneaux Islands on the east side, um, have a really outsized role in Australian history, in Victorian history and in Tasmanian history particularly, because that body of water obviously changes the way you go about shipping. Um, these survivors found seals in enormous numbers. That led to a sealing industry, which led to a whole lot of just complete lawlessness in those islands. Um, John Batman coming to the Yarra is a product of the sealing industry. The founding of Launceston comes from the sealing industry. So all of these things sort of radiated out of those islands. And then later on, when George Augustus Robinson um, gathered up what were thought to be the last of the Tasmanian Aborigines, he took them to Flinders Island, which is one of the islands in that group, and, and formed this settlement called Waibalina. And out of Waibalina, we have the tragedy of Truganini and um, 
you know, so much of the history we understand as being Australian history comes from this bunch of granite boulders. That, it, look, it, it's a wonderful book um, and it's quite ironic, Corey, that we've both been reading at a time that on the weekend we went to a performance called Hellship, which is a one-man show by Michael Veach, which is the story of the Ticonderoga. Ticonderoga, yeah, and it was yep. the, the book. He, he has a book by the same name, yeah. which is set in the sort of eighteen fifties, yeah. and then it, it's an it's an old man, an old ship surgeon, looking back in around nineteen ten, nineteen fifteen, ancestor, great great grandfather, yeah. and he performed at a quarantine station at the very very end of the Mornington Peninsula on Saturday night. So, I mean, completely different story, but another tr- ship tragedy. There was evil in that story, although not quite as much evil, although it was a lot of people crammed into a very unsafe ship that made it all the way from the UK, um, people from Scotland and Ireland basically duped into coming aboard, then the typhus epidemic, and it was the first ever ship, in fact, that was forced to land a quarantine station and not allowed to come to Melbourne. They had to stay there for six weeks. But And there I, we were in, in the officers' quarters, the old whatever the old building was that we were in, and the winds blowing around us, and we're listening to Michael Veach talk about the typhus ship and yet another passenger thrown overboard because they've died. And and then I went home and read a few more chapters. Yeah, <laughs> and, and at the end of the show, the they said, just like, put your hands up I'm if you're, so if you're related if, to a... Um, survivors of the and a lot of people in the audience put their hand up. Right. Anyway, and just, I, by by sheer coincidence, I'm really keen to read this book because when I um, was at uni, I had a job in the Point Nepean Reserve there with the National Parks, and I remember at the time they were talking about how the Ticonderoga survi- <laughs> survivors deceased had been buried on the edge of the beach, and that um, gradually the beach has been eaten away, and and they were starting to poke out of the sand. And they'd had to find them all and relocate them further in. I don't know when really? that happened, but they had to move the whole graveyard. Oh, that's, that's hundreds that's, of people. That's now set off all the children of the peninsula <laughs> going to search for bones. Remember how your mother said they did the year that um, we, we Harold, all, Harold Holt we were went all, missing? We were all told <laughs> to look. The, the, the parent, don't you love it, Jock? The parents told the kids in the summer of 1967, look, just go hunting out there, you know, go for the day. You might find try. the Prime Minister. <laughs> You might find something. Um, Jock, before we skip on, I just wanted to, uh, you know, well, I mean, of course, compliment you on the book because I found it absolutely riveting and it, and quite terrifying too. But like Tim Winton, you have an innate uh, sense of the sea and the ocean. And, of course, you're a surf writer. And Tim Winton, as we know, is a surfer too. And I think this is just a, a fabulous example of how you can make sea life and even when, uh, even when the men have, um, have, have, like the, the ship has collapsed and the men have make their way, you know, to land, you still have a sense of the sea there. It's like a character in the book. You can hear it. You can almost smell it. How did the surf writing prepare you for this book? Um, it's been a long road, I think. I started off writing about surfing because I, I wanted to be a magazine writer and, and it was the only thing I really knew a lot about. Um, and then once I had written for surfing magazines for a number of years, I, I became interested in writing fiction. And um, so I suppose in writing Quota, again, I was using the sea because it was a thing I felt like I, I had ready to hand. Um, Java Ridge starts in a similar way in that I what I wanted to write, it was the first time I, I suppose I tried to directly write fiction about surfing. And I wrote this little scene of a girl surfing a tropical wave. And once I'd written it, I, I started to think about, okay, who is she and um, what's she doing on this coral reef? 
And at the time, um, I was very angry about asylum seeker issues. I still am. Um, and I was thinking about those things a lot and it became tied into this kind of asylum seeker narrative and the idea of two boats meeting at sea. Um, so that the, the initial picture of a girl surfing um, became this much bigger story. And I suppose um, when I write, I, I use the ocean a lot as part of my routine. I go surfing a lot or I'll swim or I'll just walk or do something. Um, so it's always working in with the thinking of, of the writing and, and often um, the, the ideas that I have about what to write next are us formed sitting on the ocean. Um, the two things are completely inseparable to me and I'm not quite sure how I'd go if I had to go inland and write something. I'm not sure what would happen. Well, you don't romanticise it though. I mean, in Quota, your first novel, that the description of that, when, when we do go to, I, I assume we're around Port Ferry, Warrnambool, somewhere around there, um, in that that awful scene on the boat, I mean, it's mm. it's quite it's very evocative, but there's nothing romantic about um, being on the coast in that particular novel, is there? No, I think that's right. And and one of the disservices that surfers have done to themselves writing about surfing is that we're constantly trivialising what the ocean represents to people, um, and. You only need to go to societies who, where people are landlocked or people have to use the sea as a means of subsistence and not fun to realise that it's a much graver thing a lot of the time. Um, and, and to me, a lot of the interest lies in that kind of thinking. So, you know, in Java Ridge, you've got two boats. One boat is full of Australian surfers for whom it is a playground and the other boat is full of people from a landlocked nation who are petrified of what's going on around them. Um, and so when they wind up on the same piece of reef, you, you can really make that contrast between the two societies and the way they look at the ocean. I love the way you write about sport. And I know we, we do have to move on, Corrie, because we're going to briefly touch on the state election. But it, the rules of backyard cricket and that rather awful, sinister story of match fixing, really, as well as being mm. a, a brilliant family saga and a great story about two brothers. But the the one the line that was so savage to me and it was out of quota was where you talk about um, junior football and I wondered if you had a bad experience <laughs> because you know What's as my line? Well I, I can't it's brilliantly written and I read it out to my husband when I read it but it basically says what a miserable miserable time <laughs> the, the, the character the lawyer character has as a junior footballer. Right. Is that right? Do you remember that oh, early it's... on about and you know he was never good enough and it was just awful and dirty and Miserable and oh, pretty and much jo- my experience. <laughs> so you were thinking Jock's the wrong former lawyer, and well, now he's just venting on the page. Well, I wondered whether you know, as, football as a kid, you, you know, you didn't have much talent. No, I was terrible. <laughs> I was terrible at footy. And what's worse, um, because I carry the surname I do, there was uh, a Collingwood Premiership player named Sarong, Billy Sarong. And when I first moved to the country, there was this. I think they saw the surname coming, so I was getting a lot of phone calls initially about, "Do you want to come down to training, mate?" And I would politely say to them, I'm terrible at football. I hate pain. I'm no use to you. That's all right, mate. Just come down for a bit of a kick. But, but you almost diss the whole industry around it. And the way <laughs> kids are pushed, and unless you're really good, it's, it's actually a terrible experience, a, a miserable existence. Yeah, well, if, if you're no good, you have to play in the morning. And if you're playing in the morning and it's July and, <laughs> and it's raining hard and your fingers are numb and the football hurts, and yeah, it's not a lot of fun. I think any sport no. played in good conditions is a lovely experience, but not that. But you oh. are a footy fan, aren't you? Very much so. Yeah, yeah, love it. Love it to watch. And indeed, um, that scene of the football, match in quota um, I wrote by going to the local footy and just watching what was going on around me 
And indeed, a concussed guy did walk into a door jam the day I went. Um, and <laughs> we shouldn't laugh. <laughs> no, it was terrible. Um, but I, I love particularly country footy and the atmosphere around it and oh, what and, it does and, for and a community. Ba- and boundary politics too. Yeah. Boundary, what, you know, the CWA stall versus the canteen versus... And the honking of the parked cars when there's a goal. Um, (laughs) And it's a great thing for a community. You know, it's a really big part of the town I live in, and I'm sure it is for lots and lots of country communities. Yeah, there's a great beauty to it as well as the rest of it. Well, just back on on the Java Ridge, as you know, Jock, because you were, well, you said you were very pleased. Maybe you were just saying it, but we at the bookshop, that was our 2017 book of the year, Carol. I don't know whether you realise that. So what we do is we look at all the fiction and non-fiction books that we've loved and we pick one that we think is really topical, one that um, we've really recommended to customers and they've come back and given us amazing feedback. That's that's probably the biggest criteria. Sales is, is part of it as well. But, the, you know, this year it's the Tim Winton, the Shepherd's Hut. But last year it was you. And, um, and of course, we didn't have a bouquet of flowers or anything to give you really, just no award, just, you know, you got it. But... <laughs> Corrie, another election, another bunch of promises, another series of stories about minders and how they totally managed to take away any form of real character or personality from all the major candidates. I don't know if either of you read the article in Good Weekend. Um, It was in the age, Good Weekend last Saturday, Sydney Morning Herald as well, about the Wentworth by-election. And this, they called him Nigel, and it was basically he was the sort of fig of the story. He was the absolute. I was trying to work out his Nigel. Was that his real name? Well, they, I think they said Nigel, not his real name, but he was a guy who minded David Sharma, who they described as someone who seemed like a, a lovely and interesting man, but who was constantly taken away from the yeah. action. And it just from it made me because my husband's a political journalist, and it's quite funny because every day. It's sort of fi- trying to find out where they're going that day and they never tell, tell the media where they're going till sort of 10 minutes before and often the media don't get there in time and when they get there, they're grumpy. And It's so pathetically run, this it, campaign, It's just on and, so many levels. And, you know, we have talked for two weeks about early voting, but again, you know, what if something absolutely horrific came out this week about either Matthew Guy or Daniel Andrews and it's too late, you've already voted? In a Luke Foley sense. What? Exactly. Yes. What what is wrong with? I mean, I know. Vote on the day, voting. everyone. Vote on the day. Anyway. Caro and Jock, just super quick. I thought for the purposes of research for this program, I would just you know actually try and engage with Victorian state politics this week. The first four stories that came up on my feed: African crime hits Labor seats. That was the Australian. No surprise there with the headline. The Age said Liberal Party backs independent candidate who says homosexuals can be cured. And then the third one, which was the Herald Sun, key Labor rorts witness helps police wrap up evidence brief as the official public prosecutions considers where the charges should be laid over the rorts, whatever. And then the Guardian said, Daniel Andrews says Green have a toxic cultural problem around women. Where's the policies? This is election week. I know. Where and are the policies? Where's free, the analysis of the policies? I mean, talk about insulting. Look, Where, where's the it, tra- transport issue resolved? Where's the big leadership? Where's the vision? Where's the goals? Where's the, honestly? What interests me really? the most is whether and they've you know, got to do better. My than new this. best friend Corey Anthony Green, who I've been telling you about, who I met in Sydney a few weeks ago. You know, the ABC yep. guy who just knows everything about oh, elections. He's, he's fa- fabulous. He just he flapped around Caro like you know she was such a star because <laughs> totally he's a Sydney charming. Sw- he's a Sydney Swans fan. Anyway, he reckons that Daniel Andrews will win and it's all going to be decided on that sort of Frankston 
the sort of corridor. But it'll be interesting to see how 3AW and Neil Mitchell, who's clearly found it very frustrating because I think he had his, he's got his first interview with a Labor minister this week and who has not, Daniel Andrews won't speak to him and they've had a massive falling out, whether he and also the Herald, well, the Herald Sun to a much bigger degree are going to be able to influence this election. Because if they do, Matthew Guy will certainly, if the Herald Sun have any say in it, and the Australian, Matthew Guy or Robert in, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. But hasn't it always been the way that state politics in Victoria have been a feedback loop between the two major parties in the Herald Sun? That's, that seems to me to be the way yep. the elections run. Except that if they tried, they did everything they could to kill off Andrews last time and it didn't work. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't think it's going to work this time well, either. Well, look, whoever, whoever is the winner on the weekend, we want some good leadership. We want vision. We want big picture stuff. Not all this ridiculousness. You wouldn't be in a swinging seat down at Port Fury, would you, Jock? It's uh, probably it is blue deep, ribbon. Deep conservative. Yeah, yeah, I would have thought yeah. that. Gigantic margin. Why did you move to Port Fury? <laughs> Not for the politics. No. I mean, obviously, we, we know that you like to ride by the coast, but there's um, lots of coastal places. I, it's a really long and wandering story, but the short version is that uh, when I initially graduated from law school, I worked in a commercial firm in the CBD. And I was bored rigid. I was in a glass box and I was producing little six-minute bits of my life for someone else. And um, I almost immediately started hatching an escape plan. And in my case, the escape plan was I thought, okay, I'll give law one more go and I'll do it by finding a place on the coast where I can surf and where I can find a job in a little law office. And I figured that in order for there to be enough law officers in a town, there needed to be a county court. So I got a map of where the county courts are. They're on the coast. You really planned And this. I did. <laughs> and then I pulled the ripcord. And um, it turns out there's very few options if you apply those criteria, to have good surf and to have a county court. And um, Warrnambool was one. Uh, probably another was Geelong because it's got Torquay nearby. Um, so I, with my then girlfriend, now wife and mother of our four children, I uh, drove out to Warrnambool, found a place to get a job and then um, sort of as an afterthought turned up in Port Ferry looking for a house to rent. And there was this little cottage, beautiful little bluestone cottage that had a for lease sign out the front. And it was such a great house that I pretty much smoked the tyres getting around to the real estate agent to say, please, 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 please just hold it. I'm going to go and get some cash. And the woman behind the counter, I, in my memory, she's filing her nails, but I couldn't say whether she really was or not. But, oh, that's the, that's the writer's imagination. No, I think it might be. But she said, honey, it's been on the market for two years. You can take your time. <laughs> and so that's where I wound up living. And you're still there? You're still uh, in the Bluestone house? Funnily enough, I've, I've been back to Melbourne. I've been to Western Australia and we've come back to Port Ferry and I'm living about 80 metres from the original house. And Jock, are you writing? When did you start writing full time and give up the law? Uh, that was 2013. With and little kids, that's very brave. Yeah, uh, well, either that or very ill-considered. <laughs> You're very quick. <laughs> Corrie told me about this book you'd envisaged when you spoke at her shop last year. Right. Yeah, you'd already started researching you it. And you turned it around really quickly. Yeah, I, the last few have been quick, and, and that's because the ideas have been very definite in my head. They've been very well-formed when they've turned up. Um, I feel like this time around um, the ideas are floating around like butterflies and I'm having a little more trouble catching them. So this this could be a slower process. It's time now um, for our crush of the week. And Caro's not going to name you Jock. She she did that a few weeks ago. Um, but Caro does have a crush. It was crush. a while ago, Chloe. <laughs> but I had just, many crushes since But Jock. we would yeah. like to thank, uh, as our crush of the week, we would like to thank the Interchange Bench, specialists in temporary staffing and executive contracting, 
visit interchangebench.com.au. And, of course, they're our fabulous sponsors next week for our big lunch, Caro. What's your crush? Well, I have to introduce a serious note on this one because it's my father-in-law, um, my late father-in-law, Ted Donoghue, who was born in Ireland 93 years ago and who actually died last Saturday in Anglesey, holding the hand of his beloved wife, Moira. He was one of the funniest, sweetest men you will ever meet. He's got beautiful twinkling eyes, or he did have, and my husband happily inherited those. He was, well, Corrie, you met Ted. He's a lovely, lovely man. I I remember first meeting Ted when you and Brendan started holding hands and you'd come back from overseas and you hadn't told me that you'd hooked up with this former RMIT student friend of ours. As I recall, Corrie, you actually had a bit of an eye for him as well. (laughs) Oh, not that old story. All the podcasters are sick of hearing that. But uh, but when you both came back and you moved into a house together before you were married, um, that's when I first met Ted and Moira. And they are, as you say, just lovely, gorgeous, gracious and successful parents because they have four terrific kids. And he was still, he was still um, semi-flirting with the nurses right up until the end, threatening to pick up his golf clubs and go back out to the Anglesey golf course where he played. Or put on a pair of tennis shoes and, you know, hit the tennis court. But um, And he never complained. He was very sick by the end, but he never complained. He never asked Brendan to do hardly anything for him. I think he asked him to help him once in, in his entire life. So he's my crush of the week, Vale well, Ted. Vale Ted. And, Carol, as I said in the text to Bren when I heard the news, your dad was a true gentle man, and we need more of them, I reckon. So I hope you're all doing okay in the Wilson Donoghue household this week. And I just wanted to say thanks again to the Interchange Bench specialists in temporary staffing and executive contracting. Visit visit interchangebench.com.au and Caro, what is your segue? Well, we we needed distractions and one of them one of them is going to be preservation, which I'm halfway through and thank you for not giving away the ending. I've got a feeling it's going to get a lot worse. It's more than a distraction, honey. It gets better. <laughs> But there's this wonderful new – well, it's, it's not that new, but it's quite new. It's on Netflix and it's called The Bodyguard, not the Whitney Houston version, but it's just a, a fabulous British thriller. It's about um, a war veteran who who is given the job of minding the Home Secretary, who's played by Sophie Rundle, um, and she is absolutely – sorry, no, she's not at all. She's played – Sophie Rundle's in it, Keely Hawes. You know Keely Hawes. She's been a lot of no, those. No, I British don't. Shows I would remember watched. that name. And also, um, Gina McKee from Four Weddings and a not Four Weddings and a Funeral from Notting Hill is in it. She plays um, someone. I think she plays someone from MI Five. Oh, but, she was the lovely wife with the dark hair. Yes, in Four yes, Weddings and a Funeral, who was paralysed. Yeah. Um, but Richard Madden plays um, the sergeant, who is the former um, war veteran, who is not right at all, who is a very damaged individual, but who is a brilliant brilliant soldier and becomes a brilliant bodyguard. This is a six-part thriller. It is absolutely brilliant. Did you say on Netflix? Yes, it is. I, I, I told you it was on SBS, but apologies, Corey, it's actually on Netflix. <laughs> when you it's said really that to me yesterday, I was looking it up. I thought maybe I should watch an episode before. Well, I couldn't find well, I'm, it. Well, anyway. I've just discovered, did you ever see The Bridge, Jock? Yeah, the, um, the, the Scandi, Scandi version. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's, she's only six years behind the time. Corey said to me over a glass of champagne the other night, it's just embarrassing. Like you're just embarrassing yourself talking about it because it's so old and I'm only up to episodes. Series, series two, but I'm absolutely loving it. So, 
But I think you're right that there's that kind of platform confusion where someone's told you that yep. a series is great and you've got no idea what it's on. And so you're sitting in a darkened room. I know. Scanning through every platform you can think what of. Whatever happened got to the good thing. old Sunday night movie where you knew where uh, you were? <laughs> hang on the telly, clack the dial, there it is. Yeah, the ABC is the only really reliable one because they still do a really good series most times of the year on a Friday night or a Saturday night. And, but, jo- and Jock, if it hasn't happened to you already, it will pretty soon. You'll be yelling at each other, you and your missus, and someone will say, <laughs> get the children. They know how they to do it. it. <laughs> And Corrie, you, you're going to tell us about the mashed potato recipe from Simple. I am. Simple by Yoshe Modelengi, which we've already featured in this show. Oh, my goodness. We are cooking up a storm, aren't we, Caro, with this book? How much it's do we love it? A, oh, it's the best book. Your Clementine has it sort of permanently attached to her hands, I think. So this is a wonderful recipe, aromatic olive oil mash. Super simple, but who doesn't love mash? So you get a kilo of Desiree potatoes and peel them and cut them and some thyme and some mint and some garlic and some lemon, olive oil and then for the to- and salt, salt and black pepper. And then for the topping, put to one side olive oil, garlic clove, thyme, more mint and a lemon. So what you do is you uh, put the potatoes the thyme sprigs, the mint sprigs, the garlic, the lemon skin and two teaspoons of salt into a large saucepan. Cover it with boiling water and let it simmer for 25 minutes. And while the potatoes are boiling, you can then turn around and make the topping, which is um, 60 ml of olive oil and one garlic clove. This does not sound simple, Corrie. No, it's really it's so, <laughs> super easy. You just mix the oil, garlic. What happened to a bit of milk and butter? No, salt this and is, pepper. Oh, once you have this curry, you never go back to milk and butter. Thyme leaves, mint leaves, lemon zest and juice into a small bowl with about uh, half a teaspoon of salt or maybe a bit less and a good grind of pepper. I, I like my mash quite um, salty, I must say. And then you stir it all and you set it aside. Then you drain the potatoes um, and you... You've got to catch the water because the water has all of this, this cooking water you use later. So hold on to that. Pick out the thyme, pick out the mint sprigs, return the potatoes to the saucepan um, with the garlic and lemon peel and then mash, mash, mash. So there's just three ingredients you're mashing, the garlic, the lemon peel and the potatoes. Add a little bit of oil and add a little bit of the cooking water. I'll give you all the exact measurements when we do the show notes. And you won't forget like I did last week. Yep, good. And, and, if, and, and just if it's still a bit dry, just keep adding a bit more of that cooking water. And then you transfer the mash to a platter, right, so it's quite flat, and use the back of the spoon to create these dips in the surface, a bit like your waves there, Jock. I can see you looking really intently on this. It's a yeah. metaphor it d- for the sea. <laughs> He's thinking it sounds <laughs> far, hungry. Far, far too much and hunting then, and gathering. And then you drizzle the herb and garlic oil topping evenly over it. So it's got this lovely yellowy. Oh, yep. It looks a little bit like butter, but it's not that heavy. It's, it's, it's translucent. And then you just heaps and heaps of black pepper ground on top of it. I have a picture here, which bad luck potties, you won't be able to see. But I just, oh, God, where We'll is put it? it on the show notes, Corey. We will put it on the show notes. But look at that. Ah. So yum, 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 yum. So this is out of Ottolenghi's Simple. It took Francesca and I cooked it the other night, and it took probably—I mean, not apart from the boiling of the potatoes—it probably took about ten or fifteen minutes to prepare, and it is just super delicious. Everybody loves it. So that's what you're happy about. What are you grumpy about? Uh, well, I'm grumpy about a couple of things. I'm grumpy about uh, Hillary Clinton uh, not denying rumours that she might stand for the 2020 um, presidential election as the Democrat candidate. I just think farewell, Hillary. No, this is some, something Jock will probably not um, relate to this whatsoever. So the other morning I was lying in bed. It was about 5.30. The sun was just coming up. My arms, I was lying on my stomach and my arms were above my 
head on the pillow. I opened my eyes and, oh, my God, wrinkles. It, it's, it's, that's, it, that is something that... But wrinkly every, skin, every. wrinkly skin where your elbow is, like a granny. It's funny you I say that, Corrie. It's funny you say that. When did I, that happen? That happened to me a few Who's months ago. Who's this old ago. woman I'm in bed with? No, I saw the same thing happen to me when I was trying on a Shit, sleeveless dress. I said, dress. God, whose arms are they? I nearly died. I, know I it, nearly died. Yep, it's, it happens. It's like my mother says this to me about her friends. She'll say, darling, her neck's gone. <laughs> I never <laughs> used to know what it meant. Well, my mother said when you get menopause, you'll grow a beard and your knees drop. Oh, God. And from about the age of 30, I was going, oh, please, I don't want to have menopause. Corey, you've got and then sure arms. enough. That was puberty in my case. <laughs> <laughs> you've got beautiful arms. Don't be oh, too grumpy. Look, it just was such a shock. So I'm grumpy about aging, Caro. That's what I'm grumpy about. Well, there's nothing we can do about that, Corey. Gravity is gravity, but you look fabulous to me. Now, six quick questions. I'll start with you, Jock. Shane Warne is everywhere at the moment. Now, yeah. with all the he's, – he's, you know, working for the Macquarie Network. Has a, Sorry. Has, has a new autobiography out. Yeah, he's actually working – commentating on 3AW, I've heard. But he seems to have an opinion on – and there's a lot to talk about Australian cricket mm. at the moment. Is he a credible critic to you? Yeah, I think he is. Um, I think where we make a mistake with any athlete is to leap to the assumption that because they've got prodigious ball sense, they're somehow a moral arbiter. But if you just leave it at talking about what that skill set is, then, yeah, I think they have a lot to contribute. And and the problem for Shane Warne to me is that for years and years he's been playing this character called Shane Warne, which means that when he tries to turn the dial to serious, it's very, very hard to meet him there. Um, but there's absolutely no doubt about his cricketing brain. Um, yeah. I think he gets bad press, actually. I mean, I think that he's compared to a lot of athletes who've done some really awful things. Yeah, for sure. When all he, I mean, the selling the weather report was probably not great. and The diuretics. Um, the diuretic was disappointing, particularly when he blamed his mum, which I thought was pretty ordinary. And didn't he have a hair issue? Baldness? Yeah, but that, He had I mean, a promotion. He's, <laughs> he's, he, he, he did a deal. I mean, he's, he's had a few issues with, um, you know, the, look, he's played around a bit. But I don't. There's never been stories of drunken violence or, you know, blatant cheating or poor sportsmanship. Like, he was I mean, in the no. hotel room with the two girls who decided yeah, to but, video I the mean, whole but, thing. Why would you do that? I know, but there's no. I mean, he's, he's never really. It's just that he's compared to some athletes who've done a lot worse, and and certainly athletes have been violent. And I think it's sort of unfair because I don't think he's ever done anything violent in his life. Yeah, yeah, and I think also we want. We want to have the debate both ways in that when athletes do speak up about things that matter, we tend to tell them to stick to their knitting. Um, yep. You know, Adam Goods or Michael Long or um, uh, Nova Paris, anybody like that who says, I'm going to step outside the bounds of this and start talking about issues in society, then then there's an immediate process of slapping those people down. Um so I suppose there are problems on both sides. Particularly of when they tell uncomfortable truths, like like Adam did. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you're right, and I'm I'm enjoying Shane Warne because a lot of what he's saying is he's getting a bit impatient with all the politics and all the um, political correctness, and you can hear the frustration in his voice. Just any chance you can actually go out and make a few runs. I mean, I think Australians are starting to feel that way. <laughs> it's going to be a bleak summer. It is going well, to be we, at least we have Shane Warne to listen to. And, of course, Lee Sales <laughs> said it was the most fun interview that she has done in years. And let's consider, she's had Paul McCartney and all sorts of characters. And she said the one with Shane Warne was the one she enjoyed most. My question to you both, Caro and Jock, 
is, as I thought about this at the gym the other morning, what's your, trying to get rid of my fat arms, what's your least favourite gym exercise? You go first. God, I, I've barely ever set foot in a gym. <laughs> you don't play junior footy. You don't go to the gym. Well, why do you? You don't have to. You serve and you don't have wrinkly elbows. I'm about junior footy because it was a very sort of bitter, sad reference um, the character used. But yeah, that will have been personal. Yeah, I, I felt it was personal. Um, well, I, easy for me, tricep dips. I hate them. Oh, they sound awful. Oh, they are. They're one. In fact, Chloe, I don't mind them, and yet I've still got flabby elbow skin here. No, nothing will get rid of the wrinkles, I'm afraid. <laughs> Sorry, but it's that one when you sit um, on a seat and then you go up and down with your arms, and you've got to keep your legs stra- out straight. And mine always bend. Anyway, my friend Julie's very good at them, and I'm hopeless. Mm. So I hate triceps. Yeah, things. well, I, I don't like mountain climbers, so I'll swap you. Your tri- I love. I like mountain climbers. No, I can't stand it. My head goes all dizzy. Now, I don't know if you've caught up with the old man and the gun, Corey, the new Robert Redford movie. He says it's going to be his last ever. What's your favourite Robert Redford movie? Oh, Caro, look, that's that's just impossible. I love him. I love him and I love everything he's in. Barefoot in the Park in 1967 with Jane Fonda. Great film. Oh, great film. Where the comedy comes out of this incredibly gorgeous-looking 20-something chap. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Great film. Yeah, that's mine for sure. How good is that? But then then I think of all the President's Men where he took the character of Bob Woodward and really, I mean, Al Pacino was still kind of playing Al Pacino even though he was supposed to be Carl Bernstein. But, But Bob... Here's the Bob Woodward character, took us into that whole territory of dirty politics and deep throat, uh, the insider informer. And I was just riveted in that movie. And I think probably that would be the one I would say. I'd go for Butch, Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But so I, For me, that was more of a Paul Newman film, though. I did. I love The Candidate, which is um, another yes, political one he did. One. Oh, yeah. Where he ends up winning the election and turns around and goes, right. what do we do, what do, we do now? What do we do? It's exactly right. And, and the one he directed was Ordinary People, which is just a brilliant oh, film about We grief. saw that together. Yeah. At, which With he Mary Tyler Moore. Yes. Oh, who was brilliant and in Donald it. Donald Sutherland. Great um, film. My question to you, Jock, and this is one that we always ask our writers who visit the book pod, so I wanted to ask you, who or what was your favourite book or character or indeed series when you were a little kid? I, it um, wouldn't have been Specky McGee, I would be thinking. No, I, I well predate Specky McGee. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Although so. Although I've read that too, my boy. Um, I reckon I started on Secret Sevens and moved to Famous Fives. And you know then, you're supposed to go the other way, don't you? Are you? Yeah, because, well, the theory is that a, a little child, a smaller, younger child can cope with five characters, and then as they become a bit older, they can cope with seven. Right. But that's all right. Um, oh, no, I think I, I, agree. I think Secret Seven is more shallow than The Famous Five. Things got a bit more interesting <laughs> than Famous Five. I, I, it's true. There's not a lot of intrigue in there. And there's a fabulous four, or the fa- there's a four yeah, as well. There's a spin-off. No they four. never really. They there's never no really. four. Gee, Come we reckon on. you're a quick, quick writer. Enid Blyton, boy, did she churn them out. Extraordinary. And Although you do sense a formula, well. though. Oh, you know. <laughs> the old man in the lighthouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, the faraway trees, I remember those. And then I think I went through this long kind of fantasy genre time. Uh, which started with The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. And I, I had this memory the other day of being 12, and, and there were two things going on in my life. I was deep in The Lord of the Rings, and I'd started smoking at school. And it was sort of, you know, like behind the hedge smoking. Yes, I and, wouldn't have thought it was in English class, Jock. No, no, that's right. But I'm not sure we had a bike shed, which is <laughs> so where you commonly can I just, can I borrow your match? <laughs> 
I was suspended for smoking at school. We, we actually did it somewhere we shouldn't have done it. Yeah, in the bathrooms. Really stupid. Oh, right. Not like the fuel store or something. No, no, no. Anyway, but you were reading Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and you and started smoking at school. And the smoking went sour. I, I think I threw up my lunch at one stage. But my parents coming into my room, and I was reading Lord of the Rings, and mum saying, or dad saying, you have to come out and speak to your mother and me. And I thought I was going to be congratulated on reading the Lord of the Rings. In fact, I was being grounded for smoking. <laughs> And it was like this sort of sliding doors moment when you're 12 years old. And you always think of one and the other. Yeah, yeah. I associate Lord of the Rings with throwing up my lunch, having smoke. <laughs> having smoke and, well, and being, being gated. Peter Jackson. Getting in trouble with your parents. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got, a, I've got a book one for you too. Um, do you have a favourite crime writer or can you name three? Um, yeah, I, I reckon. I, um, Dostoevsky for me. It, it all depends what you call a crime writer, which is what I find so interesting about the discussion of crime. But I would think of, of Crime and Punishment as being the ultimate crime novel. So he, he fits the bill there. Robert Gott, who's an Australian um, writing, he has two series. He has the Willpower series, which are um, more humorous. And then he writes um, these series called The Murders. There's the Port Ferry Murders. There's the Autumn Murders. Oh, I've never um, read him. And right. they are fantastic. They're historical and, and they're just minutely researched. And he has a beautiful process as a writer. He writes longhand in, in these beautiful notebooks and then every couple of months he'll transcribe them and start again. And he writes almost a perfect first draft. Um, it's quite extraordinary to watch. Um, you've got me on a third. Uh, oh, Gary Disher would oh, be a okay. third. Love yes. Gary Disher. He gets a lot of mentions at our yeah. book club, doesn't he? Mm, a couple of the girls have a crush on him, I think, Caro. Would, I think so. Would you describe yourself as a crime writer? No. I, I certainly get described as a crime writer. Um, and you, won, a, you won a Ned Kelly Award. I wondered about that, though, because, it, I, I mean, I think you write on many levels and crime is just one of well, several. But yeah, again, it's about pushing the boundaries of what you consider a crime novel. I mean, Java Ridge is full of crimes, but they're being carried out on behalf of a government. Um, there are crimes going on in the bush in preservation. Um, and the rules of backyard cricket is... A thriller in on one level, isn't yeah. it? And we've got a guy locked in a car boot who's been shot. Yeah, which looks pretty crimey. <laughs> but it's off. But I think it's off. I think um, rules of backyard cricket. I always see it more as a family drama. Two brothers, you know, two sporting well, hero brothers who I are cricketers. Do, yeah, I did I a lot of wars. lying at the time because um, sometimes blokes would sidle up to you and say, "Is this a cricket book?" And I'd say, absolutely, it's a cricket book. <laughs> and then other people, you know, would, would come to you and say, like, I can't stand cricket. It's like watching paint dry. Would, would I like this? Oh, yes, it's a book about families. Um, so you, you can kind of spin it either way, I suppose. Oh, I so impressed on. myself with Paul Marsh, who's the head of the AFL Players Association. And we caught up a few Christmases ago. It was around the time they're having the pay dispute, um, the CBA dispute with the AFL players. And, I, and just as I was leaving, I said, oh, by the way, because he's Rod Marsh's son, and before he did the AFL job, he was a player's rep for the cricketers. And I said, you should, you should read this book or if, if you want to give it to someone for Christmas, so you'd absolutely love it. Well, street cred. Hundred oh, percent. He I'm absolutely glad about that. loved it. I thought there was oh, more great. point to the story. I thought no, it was going to be some he, amazing he loved it story. He, but he he loved it on the you know level of the match fixing, right? And, you know that that sort of story because it's a mystery. I mean, some people can tell pretty early on, you know, which of the brothers is really the evil brother, but. Yeah, Don't yeah. spoiler yeah. alert. Don't give anyway, anything away. Anyway. Hey, Cara, I'm not going to let you say one more thing about this book because you'll give it away, as you sometimes do. I do. I'm sorry. Um, what's your GLT? 
Well, look, we have to give a shout out to Jeff Slattery, who off the back of my baking paper tip a few weeks ago, where, you, where Annabelle Crabb told us you crinkle baking paper and put it in the pan and that's what keeps it flat. Jeff Slattery says you wet it as well and that's even better. So thank you, Jeff. But my good local tip, <laughs> Corrie, prepare for life change, liquid what? dishwashing detergent. As in, no, but in your dishwasher. Don't shake your head like that, Jane. <laughs> So you know, I was going to say, hasn't it been around for about ninety-seven forget years? Forget powder. Is there another kind? Forget powder. <laughs> Does it no, help your help your wrinkles under your elbows? No, but you know how um, you know how your glasses can get that awful frosty. Yes, they lose their glassy. They they lose their clarity. Yeah, they they go all milky. And so you color. think, well, you can't put glasses in the dishwasher anymore. Well, you can. You put into the dishwasher, not powder, and not those awful pod things with the little red dot in the middle. They destroy your dishes. Liquid dishwashing, it's not detergent because it goes in the dishwasher. Well, so you buy it specifically for the dishwasher. Yes, it's not it, just yeah, like no, 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 no. No, it is special stuff. Don't it's yell at me. It's made by, <laughs> I think Finnish make it, or I think they made the one I bought. It's about, um, it's taller than the one, the dishwashing it's powder. it's very expensive, isn't no, it? No, it's not. And guess what? Everything comes out just as clean. Jane, do you think she's raising clear. her voice at me about this well, issue? Well, I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> it's the best local tip I've had in ages. Anyway, that's my good local tip. Oh, okay. I'm glad you're happy with that. Um, before you <laughs> before you close and thank Jock, I'd like to thank Jock very much. And I just wanted to put in a, a quick plug, Caro, before we go for the book pod. Episode four at the moment is still up with Dr. Anne Summers, which I just was, you know, had a absolute fabulous time with her. But on Friday, the interview with Jane Harper and her new book, The Lost Man, which is a really terrific, again, not quite crime, not quite family drama, but a terrific book. But that's that's going to be dropped on Friday. So that's just a little plug for me. Over to you. I was going to plug that for you, Corrie, but you've done it for me. Yeah, thanks, Jock. You were going to thanks, be Carol. a book podcast, but you were so popular, we decided to put you in the general show. Oh, so happy to be here. <laughs> it's great to meet you. All the best with this book. I'm sure it's going to be a brilliant bestseller like all of your others. Oh, I hope um, so. it, it should be. It's, I mean, I can't put it down. Um, to everyone who is listening, please tell your friends and family to subscribe to our podcast at don't shoot pod is the best way to find us and we also have an instagram page it has a new password a new name Corey. and it has a new password as well oh, Caro. because you it's, lost the old one it's called don't shoot pod and you can find all of the ways to get in touch with us via our show notes where you will also find last week's recipe as well as this week's recipe and cory remember don't shoot the messenger Hi, I'm Ann Summers. I hope you can join Corrie Perkin and I on the book pod. There's definitely a new wave. We've gone from that period during the 90s of I'm not a feminist, but now everyone's a feminist and it maybe it's diluted. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I mean, if, if Rihanna and Beyonce and every politician you can think of is calling themselves a feminist, what does that mean and what do they mean when they say that? This to me was the most extraordinarily glamorous and sophisticated thing, you know, that I could possibly imagine. And the notion that a single woman um, had the money and the freedom to do something like that was, you know, it just opened my eyes and it made me realise that I wasn't bound to the choices that my family and that my school had tried to impose on me and I realised there were other ways. So Don Watson, your mate, rings up. He's acting as speechwriter for Paul Keating, the then Prime Minister, and says... 
Paul's got a bit of a problem with women. I love that. <laughs> we do love the way Don talks. And the lawyers tried to take that out, the saying, you know, that we, we don't want to imply that, that, you know, that Paul Keating is sexually harassing or something. I said, no one's going to think that. I mean, it's quite obvious. We get it, because it's the way Australians talk. Yes. And also, if you know Don Watson. And also, the, the context is quite clear. We're talking about a political problem. We're talking about a gender gap. I'm Ann Summers. Join me on The Book Pod. Subscribe to The Book Pod wherever you can listen to podcasts.